The following message is a presentation of Valley Metro Church, a community of believers dedicated to knowing God and making Him known. Um, you know, I was just thinking about something this week. It's something that happens kind of a lot in my life, maybe too often, and maybe you've caught yourself in the, in the same position. Have you ever found yourself saying, when you go to do something, uh, will you stop and have this aha moment where you go, wow, it really would have been nice to know this way back then. Has anybody ever done that? Uh, you know, like you, you sit down, have a nice meal, and you, you, know, you get the check, and, and, and they say, sorry, we only take cash. And you're like, well, that would have been nice to know before I walked in here, right? Uh, or what's happened to me driving through the parking structure and you go to pay and a big line behind you with all the angry people, it's taken forever and they say, sorry, we only take cash. Has that happened to you? And you're sitting there looking with big eyes like, I'm sorry, pal, I don't have any cash. You know, uh, some of these things, it would have been nice to know these things before we had started. Maybe you show up at a party and you didn't know it was an 80s party and you're the only one there who's not dressed up. Or you show up dressed up for work and it's a free dress day and you're the only one who didn't get the memo. It would have been nice to know before you started. I'm sure we can make a list of things that would be amazing. It would have been nice to know before we started. Uh, So many things in life. If we were to give advice to people on whatever you do, make sure you do this. In fact, that's why I love talking to the older generation because the older generation has a whole life experience about these kind of things that would tell you, Whatever you do, make sure you do this. And they, they know from experience, and sometimes we're figuring this out along the way. What's it all about? What matters most? Uh, what does matter most? And what doesn't matter most? And some of our pursuits and things we're going after in life matter, and some of them don't matter. And, and it's amazing when you talk to the older generation, they, they've usually settled on some of these things, these really uh, important things. And I'm sure if we were to make a list here in the room to give advice to others, we too would come up with a list as well of whatever you do, make sure you do this, and whatever you do, make sure you don't do that. We would have some main things that we would put in front of them that say, hey, if you only get a couple of things, make sure you get these main things. Maybe you, you can think of a couple of things right now, but if you were just to hand off one or two pieces of advice, just one or two, what would those two be? If you only had two pieces of advice to hand off to your family, friends, and loved ones, whatever you do, do these things, what would they be? Because we're going to see in a passage today, that's exactly what happens with Jesus. What are the most important things? What's the most important thing? And Jesus says, whatever you do, make sure you get this. It's an amazing passage in the Bible, and uh, we're going to be looking at that. In fact, if you guys want to turn there, we're going to jump right in this morning. It's Matthew chapter 22. We're picking up where we left off. We're teaching through this book of Matthew, which has been pretty amazing. Um, And Jesus is going to shed some light on the most important things. So you and I don't have to wait for life experience uh, to to remind us of the most important things. Jesus tells us right out of the gate, these are the most important things. And so hopefully we're going to take them to heart. And the setup is this, that um, he's about to share these powerful things and the religious leaders, uh, in, this, in the timeline of Matthew, Jesus is about to go to the cross, just as we are about to go into Good Friday and, uh, you know, a Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. The timeline in this gospel, Jesus is in his final week in Jerusalem. 
And he's sharing these stories. And you can tell in the storyline, things are building. The tension is building. The religious leaders are trying to get Jesus busted. They're trying to call him out. They're trying to find something wrong or trick him or get him to say something. And they can't seem to get Jesus to stumble. Anytime they ask him a question, he turns around with absolute truth. And it's so powerful. They're just in awe. They don't have an answer for Jesus. They tried to, uh, last week, uh, we looked at how they, they try to get him in trouble with the, with the Roman leaders about a tax question, and Jesus handled that. So everything they threw at Jesus so far, he's been able to just stop them, silence them, correct them, and point them to truth. And today, uh, he is going to respond to one of their questions with powerful clarity, and it's a question on what matters most. And, and again, I would say out of all these uh, statements uh, that are coming up in the, in the Bible, when you see... Uh, in the Sadducees and the Pharisees coming up to Jesus, they're asking them these questions. And I don't know about you, but like when I read my Bible, I'm, I'm looking at these guys and I'm like, why are these guys trying to bust Jesus? I mean, they're asking these lame questions and they're trying to get Jesus in trouble and he's God's son and you, you, you know, there's nothing wrong with him. You know? How many of you have looked at Jesus really closely? You can't find anything wrong with him, right? There's nothing wrong with him. He was sinless. He lived a perfect life. He was our, our model. And, and, I, and you look at all these things, but This specific question that Jesus is asked today uh, is pretty powerful, and I'm glad this question was asked. Some of the questions that were asked of Jesus, I'm thinking, I don't know why you asked that question, and and I go through them, but this question today, I am so glad, because they actually asked Jesus, what matters most? And Jesus tells them what matters most. And what he told them applies to us today and applies to every generation in the fullness of time this is what matters most. So I'm hoping if you're interested in this topic, you want to take down some notes because Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's sharing some profound wisdom and insight, things that matter most. And I think we should take note of these things. So um, we're going to read this next section of uh, scripture. Um, there's, there's, there's two passages back to back and we're going to read through them, but I'm going to do the second one first and then I'm going to break down the first one. Okay, so let's start if we could in verse 34, Matthew chapter 22. And it goes like this, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And while the Pharisees gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, quote unquote, then how can he be his son? And no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is where the questions end in this passage. And Jesus shares some very profound and powerful things that really matter most. And so he responds to the, the they ask him a question and Jesus answers it. We're gonna look at that one in a second. And Jesus asks them a question. And uh, we've talked about this before. Um, When people are open to faith, when they're open to faith, we share all kinds of things with anyone who's open to faith. But if you find that someone is skeptical, 
uh, and they're not really open to the faith, um, we should do what Jesus did and turn around and ask them questions. Ask them questions. Because what it does is it begins to dismantle our own, why are we blocking truth? And why are we holding God off? And why are we pushing God away? They won't say outright, but when you ask questions, it kind of gets to the bottom uh, of things. And we looked at that a couple weeks ago, the power of, of the question when you, when you ask questions. So it, Jesus starts with these guys and he's asking a question and he starts out asking about the Messiah. Um, and ever since Moses came, 1,500 years earlier than when Jesus is speaking, uh, Israel's been waiting for their Messiah, 1,500 long years. Um, uh, Moses said, there's going to be the one coming after me, and he's going to do this, and he's the promised one, and listen to him, and he's the, you know, the Messiah, the anointed one. So they're all waiting for this. All the writing in the, you know, in the Old Testament and the Psalms and the Proverbs is pointing to this Messiah, and they're waiting, Israel's waiting 1,500 long years uh, for the Messiah. And at this point in the passage, as Jesus is going into Jerusalem, and people are saying, Hosanna to the son of David, Palm Sunday. Many are recognizing him as the Messiah. But many of your Jewish leaders are not. Uh, the word Messiah is synonymous with Savior, Christ. Uh, same word, he's the Savior, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. And Israel has been waiting and waiting and waiting. And so the people, some of the people are recognizing, but the Jewish leaders primarily are not. And so Jesus asked them this profound question, uh, with, with the Messiah, and, he, and he's, he's saying to them, whose son is he? Uh, and this is important because if you're in Israel and if you have friends that are Jewish, um, for example, uh, you should be able to ask them just like what Jesus is doing today about Messiah. Um, I remember where, I do this with my Jewish friends that I encounter and I ask them this question, but I remember specifically this one gal I worked with who was Jewish and um, we were talking about faith, and she's like, yeah, I'm not a Christian, I'm Jewish. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's awesome, you're Jewish. And um, so let me ask you, you go to temple? And she goes, yeah, well, we go like twice a year. And I'm like, that's great, that's great. So what do you think about uh, Messiah? She's like, about who? I go, about Messiah. I don't know about Messiah. I go, you don't know about Messiah? No. I'm like, wow, how could you not know about Messiah? Your people have been waiting 3,500 years for one event. How many events? How many events? 3,500 years for one event. Messiah. Just Messiah. 3,500 years waiting for Messiah. You don't know? No, I didn't really think about Oh, yeah, no, you got to check your Torah. You got to check your... Because it says uh, all these things about who he is and what he's going to do and what he's going to say and um, when he's going to show up, actually when he's going to be born and, and his main objective and purpose and mission. All these things are in your Torah about when Messiah, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, Mashiach, as they would say, is going to come. And she's like, I never thought about that. And so we have to ask our Jewish friends the same thing that Jesus said. What do you think about Messiah? It's a great place to start. This is where the conversation begins specifically for Jewish people. And so he asked the question, which is a valid question about Messiah, whose son is he? And they respond saying he's the son of David. Um, and Jesus brings up this messianic passage uh, in Psalms where King David is referring to as he's writing this psalm, the song, he's writing the, about the Messiah, but he's also calling the Messiah the Lord. And it's interesting that he's not just saying, uh, you know, my son, he's saying the Messiah, the Lord. And so Jesus is asking them whose son is, is the Messiah, and they're saying David's son. And Jesus is like, there's more to it than you think there is. 
and he starts revealing these insights from the Old Testament scriptures, um, David's referring to this Messiah as his Lord and his God, which is a paradox because it can't just be David's son if in fact this Messiah is also Lord and, and God. So he is more than the son of David. Son of David is a messianic term, a term about Messiah. Um, Jesus did some healing earlier in the Gospels and the lady cried out and even the blind men, oh, Jesus, son of David, come like Messiah. We believe you're the one. So son of David is a valid term for the Messiah to come. He's going to come in the line of the lineage of David. We knew that from the tribe of Judah and he was going to come in that line and Jesus did in fact come. So in essence, Jesus was a son of David, but he's telling the Pharisees, if you think he's just the son of David, you're mistaken because he is a whole lot uh, more than that. And so uh, if you're a note taker this morning, and this is so profound to, to take note of this, because when we talk about the things that matter most, Jesus starts out, these are the last, his last dialogue with the religious leaders. These are all the smart religious guys. These are the guys who supposedly know their Bible inside and out, waiting for the Messiah at this point for 1,500 years. The sharpest people they could gather together throwing their questions at Jesus, and these are the last two answers Jesus really has for them. So I think we need to take these to heart because these matter most. And the first thing this morning is that uh, Jesus is more than Messiah. Would you say that with me? He is, he's Messiah, but he's even more than Messiah. And that's where he's going. You see, what's about to happen is they're gonna try to get Jesus busted for blasphemy. Because Jesus is doing things that are beyond what a prophet does, beyond what a healer does or a miracle worker does, beyond what a teacher does, and beyond what even a Messiah in their mind would do. He is doing things that only God can do. He's calming the storms. He is raising the dead. And then he is forgiving sins. And only God can do that. There are times in the passages in Scripture we're going to see where they come and they bow and they worship him. Even at his birth, they were worshiping him. After he rose from the dead, worshiping him. I mean, after they had the storm on the lake and Jesus was on the other side of the lake and they, after the storm on the lake and they're bowing and worshiping him and Jesus didn't say, stop, get up. I'm just a prophet. He received the word. Jesus did things that only God can do. And the, the religious leaders are having a problem with it. And so Jesus says, whose son do you think he is anyway? And the thing is, if they just think he's David's son, they will only expect the things of David's son. They will only listen to him as if he was David's son. And Jesus is saying, I got some insight for you. The Messiah is more than uh, the son of David. And so Jesus is, in fact, more than Messiah. He is the son of David, is a, is a messianic term. Uh, another term used in the Bible is the son of man, the son of man, because Adam was the first man and through the lineage of uh, the fallen man, the Messiah was going to come. In fact, one of the first passages in scripture, uh, when, when God's addressing Adam and Eve in the, in the, in the garden, he says, listen, um, the serpent's always going to be snapping at your heel. The devil is always going to, he goes, but someone's going to crush his head and that's going to be the Messiah when he finally comes. He's going to destroy the works of darkness. So even from the beginning, the Messiah was going to come as the son of man, and then more clarity later on, the son of David, and we're getting more clear. If you read the scriptures, you'll see when he was going to come, how he was going to come, where he was going to be born, the stuff he was going to do. It gets to be a clear, clear picture if we're looking, but even more important than the son of man, even more important than the son of David, 
Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God. And that's where he's going with this. See, there's a big difference. If he's the Son of David and the Son of Man, he can't say certain things. And he can't do certain things. But if he's the Son of God, of course he can say and do certain things. And this is what the tension is in the story right now. There's, they're seeing Jesus heal, but they're seeing him forgive. And they're seeing him bring the New Testament, the New Covenant. The Old Testament even says... A time is coming where I'm going to do a new thing with Israel. I'm going to reveal a new covenant. Everyone say new covenant. The old covenant promises there will be a new covenant. And the problem is, for our Jewish friends that we love sincerely, they they oftentimes miss the fact that their own Torah says the whole point is Messiah is going to come and there will be a new covenant and it won't be this one. It will be a new one. It won't be that one anymore. And this one promises the new covenant when Messiah comes. And Jesus comes as Messiah and he's saying these new things. And they're like, wait a second, where's this coming from? And they don't have a category for him. But he's God's son. He's the word in flesh. And he's speaking these new insights, these new prophecies, this new wisdom, these new oracles of, of God, if you will. So he is, in fact, the son of God. And what's so important is, and this is what matters most, guys. This matters most. And that's why this is his last conversation, really, with these religious leaders. If Jesus is the son of God, excuse me, if Jesus is the son of David, we're going to listen to him. You and I will listen to him as the son of David. Uh, If he's a teacher, we'll listen to him as a teacher. If he's a miracle worker, that's great. There was other great teachers too. There were other great philosophers. There was other people that affected history. And we'll listen to him like those. And you know people in your life that listen to Jesus like these other people teachers, right? Do you know any friends that listen to Jesus like other teachers, right? Oh, he was a great teacher. He had some insights. He tapped into power. There's all kinds of, you know, he tapped into this thing or he found this way to connect and do these things. And so there's people on that quest. However, if he's in fact the son of God, which he says he is, in which he does by the very, by the merits of his actions, not just forgiving sins, raising the dead, receiving worship, common seas, doing things that only God can do, conquering death himself, saying, I will lay down my life and check it out in three days. I will pick it up again. You're like, no one, no prophet, nobody can lay their life down and pick it up again. And Jesus says, stay tuned, stay tuned. I will lay it down and I will pick it up. And you're thinking, who is this? This is not a prophet, a teacher, a miracle worker. This is even more than a messianic figure. Who is this? He's like, if you read the book, you're gonna see that he's not just the son of man, the son of David, he's the son of God. And if he's the son of God, and, and, if, and he is, but if he is to us, if we hold on to that truth, if we see it for what it is, if we see the value and the weight and the clarity of the identity of Jesus, we put a whole different weight on the words of Jesus. There's many of us gathered here today that put a lot of weight on the words of Jesus. But you have friends, family, and loved ones and others who don't put a lot of weight on the words of Jesus. And the reason is because you see the truth that he's God's son and others see that he was a nice guy and a miracle worker and a, you know, all that whole list of other nice things that people categorically put Jesus in. But he's in fact God's son. And because he's God's son, we put weight on his words. And if I were to tell people, if I were on my deathbed and my last dying words, or if you were, or you had to write it down in our older age, telling your children, your grandchildren, your friends, family, your, the next generation, listen guys, I am checking out, I'm leaving, I'm going on to glory, but let me tell you what matters most. I would say one of the things that matters most is Jesus is more than the Messiah. Jesus is God's son. Put weight on his words, amen? Put weight on his words. Like don't just listen, hear his words, 
Listen to his words because his words are true and his words are alive. Now, I want to be fair about this. The Old Testament does point out that Jesus is the Messiah is going to be son of God. But the New Testament is full of terminology about the son of God. Jesus calling his father, father, our father in heaven. He's teaching him to pray. So there's uh, the father saying, this is my son who I love. I'm well pleased with. Listen to him. There's all kinds of New Testament insight on the father, son relationship on the deity of God. In the Old Testament, it's sprinkled. It's in there, but it's not as overt as it is in the New Testament. And so here's a scripture uh, that does point it out pretty clear. Psalm 2.12, also likely written by David, uh, who clearly understood that the Messiah was going to be more than just his son, going to be a whole lot more than that. This is what it says in Psalms 2.12, kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a messianic text about the Messiah, saying the Messiah is the Son, and this Son Messiah, Lord, is capable of both wrath or, wrath or refuge. Everyone say wrath or refuge. It's a choice. You can choose wrath or refuge, but kiss the Son, because the Son is the one. The Son is the one who offers wrath and refuge. It's a choice. Choose this day who you will serve. And so this is a messianic passage saying, the Son, interesting. The Messiah, the Son, interesting. That makes sense. See, a prophet can't offer wrath and refuge. A prophet can't. A teacher can't. And a miracle worker can't. But God can. God can offer wrath or refuge as our choices, as our outcomes. And so it's amazing. So Jesus, we know was born to a woman. He was born to Mary. And Mary was in David's lineage, uh, King David's lineage. So in essence, Jesus is the son of David because Mary was in the tribe of David, the tribe of Judah, and Mary had a son. And so Jesus, in essence, is the son of David connected to that, that term very well. But how many of you know that's who he is on his mother's side? How many of you know who he is on the father's side? Are you hearing me this morning? On the father's side. On the father's side. Um, Christy and I, years ago, in fact, right when we got engaged, um, we were up in Yosemite and uh, hanging out with some friends, and we were at this campground kind of place, and we went into, they had a little chapel service, right? And so we went into this chapel service in a little campground outside of Yosemite, small little thing, right? And there was this older couple, they were probably about 90, and they were putting on the chapel service. This husband and wife team, they've been tag team in ministry at these little camps probably their whole life. It was just a cool scene to see, loving God, loving each other, loving people, and they're putting on this thing. And they got up there and did this little song, you know, um, he played a little guitar and she was doing some singing, and they did this song talking about Jesus, and the song went something like, well, on my mother's side, asking Jesus, so who are you and where are you from? And Jesus saying, well, on my mother's side, um, this and this and this and this and this, but on my father's side, I'm this and this and this. It's the coolest thing. It's stuck with me ever since. I'm going to have to find it and play it for you guys so you can appreciate it. But uh, Jesus is on the mother's side, the son of David. On the father's side, born of the Holy Spirit, son of God. So he is son of David, son of God. And the good news is through faith in Jesus, we too get to become sons of God, which is epic. This is monumental because Jesus being the son of God, not just son of David and son of man, but son of God, you and I, John chapter one says that as many 
as many that are willing to receive him. Again, it's a choice. You choose wrath or refuge. It's a choice for the whole planet. Which one do you want? Uh, It's a total choice. And the Bible says, to as many that are willing to receive him, to those ones that are willing to receive him, he gives the right to become sons and daughters of God, children of God. So becoming a child of God is just the right. We just get to step into it by faith. And some are like, nope, I'm not going to step into that. And by doing so, they're choosing wrath instead of choosing refuge. And it's an amazing, uh, glaring truth in Scripture. So here's a second important thing. When Jesus offers some of the most important things, we're, um, excuse me, we're seeing it right in our passage here. Second point this morning is this. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that sons of man might become sons of God. See how that works? The Son of God became the son of man so that sons and daughters of men might become sons and daughters of God. I think it's absolutely beautiful. And it's a wide open invitation. Why is it an invitation like that? Because God so loves the whole world. And that's why he sent his son to redeem, to bring us back, to bring us into relationship with us, to bring us into a love relationship. Now, in passing, the Pharisees at large did not accept Jesus this way. But on a good note, right now, as this passage was going, there were many Pharisees starting to change their heart right now and see Jesus for what he is. We know there was Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night. We know at the resurrection, he believed and was a Christ follower. There was a Joseph of Arimathea, became a Christ follower. We know Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, was a Pharisee as well. So many of these guys through these conversations and encounters, started to see and wake up along the way. Paul's was more dramatic, but these other guys saw, they listened, and they go, you know what? He is more than Messiah. He is God's son. I am putting weight on his words. And they began to see all these things. It says in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, I love this passage. Um, We wonder what happened with the early religious leaders. Like, were they all checked out? Were they all like, just like clueless, 100% of them? And no, not, not all of them. Many were not. But Acts chapter, uh, 6, verse 7 says that, So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I love that. These are priests who worked at the temple, and they're involved in the temple sacrifice, right? The sacrifice is going on in Israel. And that's the only way to atone for sins temporarily, cover sins, not take them away, cover sins, cover sins, cover. You'd sin again, you'd, you'd do this act of atonement, but you're only covering them and you're never really going away and you sin again. And they're doing this sacrificial system and, and these priests were involved in that. But when they saw Jesus, they knew that the Messiah from Old Testament scripture, the promise of what he's actually going to do when he comes, is he's going to actually take away the sins of the world that he's actually going to atone, he's going to be the final atoning sacrifice. So when Jesus died for the sins of the world, these guys are like, we don't need this gig anymore. We don't need this job. We don't need this role, this ministry in the temple, lighting things on fire to atone because Jesus did it. And Acts says a whole bunch of them are like, he's the way, the truth, and the life. And they started following him. I, I would love to see what that looked like up at the temple. Help wanted signs like outside the temple. Like all these priests like leaving, going, he's the way, the truth, and the life. They walk away from, they're not starting fires anymore up there. They go this way. They start following Jesus. It's amazing. Now, here's the powerful part. Verse 33 through 40. This is where an expert in the law, expert, top notch. They said, listen, and this fact, this is the last really question of Jesus we see in Matthew's gospel this way. 
and they say, let's bring our A game, let's put our best foot forward, and they come forward with this question. Again, I actually like this question. This question lives on today. This question blesses me, and I hope it blesses you. An expert in the law tested him with the question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Uh, And it's a great question because the Bible's full of so much instruction. There's so much insight, wisdom, revelation. He's saying what's most important, what matters most. And so uh, the first thing Jesus says is, well, the answer that I'm about to give you is not just in the law. The law to them was referred to the first five books of Moses. Maybe you have some Jewish friends who believe in just the first five books of Moses. We've referred to that as the Pentateuch. Um, the first five books, but um, a lot of Jewish people look at the entire, what Reed referred to as our Old Testament, the Torah, which is the law and the prophets, the Psalms and the books of history. Everything that we have in our current Old Testament is what um, the Pharisees at the time believed in. Uh, The Sadducees in the Bible only believed in the first five books, but the uh, Pharisees believed in the entire current Old Testament, just as you have in your Bible uh, today. And Jesus said, the answer you're looking for is not just in the law, the first five books, it's in the law and the prophets. We've got to look at the whole summary of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, if you're asking me what's the greatest in the entire Bible, I'm going to tell you what the most important thing is today. Now, what's so cool about this? Um, this is the most important thing to know. It's the most important thing to do. It's the most important thing to live. It's the most important thing you need to hang on to. It's the most important thing that Jesus is going to reveal to them and to us today. And this is what matters most. And this is not just an opinion. This is God's son giving revelation on what matters most. And that's what I love about this passage because it lives on today with profound power, profound insight. And they say to him, out of everything in the book, Jesus, and there's a lot in there, what matters most? And he says this answer in two parts. He says, the first part of my answer has to do with, listen, your relationship with with God. Number one, it's your relationship with God. The second part of my answer, Jesus would say, has to do with your relationship with others, others around you. And I love Jesus saying, it's about you and God, and it's about you and others. How many of you know the cross goes two ways as well? Amen? The cross brought reconciliation with us and God where there was a big breach between our relationship with God because our sin got in the way and we couldn't really connect with God or be in relationship truly because our sin blocks it. Jesus says, I'll... I'll take that one for you. I'll take away all the sins of the world so you have direct access to God. And then the cross also goes this way because the Bible tells us that through what Jesus did, we are reconciled to one another, that he provided a provision that forgiveness and redemption, even in relationships on earth, of all peoples, every tribe, tongue, and nation, Jew and Gentile, doesn't matter what it is, through the power of the cross, there's nothing else on the planet that offers the redemption between cultures and races and peoples. Nothing ever in the history of humanity that offers the redemption between peoples and cultures in the history of this planet than the cross of Jesus Christ because it redeems us to one another and we're redeemed uh, to the Father. How many of you know the cure for peace in the Middle East is is Jesus? The cure for peace because he reconciles us to God and he reconciles us to to one another. And so Jesus said the answer is two part. It's first parts with God, the second parts which with each other. And he says the answers I'm about to give you have one common thing with God and with others. And that's simply love. Everybody say love. Love. That word is so powerful. They're asking Jesus what matters most. Jesus goes, you want to know what matters most? Love matters most. 
And you, you wonder why love. There's a lot of things in the Bible. What about power? What about this? What about revelation? What about insight? What about, you know, there's all kinds of things. Yeah, those are all important. But love matters most. According to Jesus, the Bible says the greatest is love. The greatest is love. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, that means I can speak in human tongues in all kinds of ways, and I can speak in angelic languages in all kinds of ways. That sounds like a cool spiritual insight. He's like, but if you don't have love, we're nothing. If we can prophesy and know all mysteries, we're nothing. And it goes on, if we can do this and that, sounds so cool and so spiritual. And Jesus, like Paul writes, if you don't have love, it's nothing. And so love, love matters most. And so write this down for our third part, because Jesus is bringing revelation on what matters most. And my prayer is we, we take this to heart and maybe take it home with us and pray, God, show us how to live this out. But the third part is the greatest is love, but it's not a feeling, it's a lifestyle. The greatest is love, but it's not a feeling, it's a lifestyle. He didn't say, um, I hope you can feel love with God or hope you can feel his love. And I hope you can feel love with those around you. And I hope they can feel love with you. That's a nice idea. And maybe it will work out that way where everybody will feel it. But this is not what he's saying to do. He's saying to love. He's saying to love. It's a lifestyle of love. A lifestyle. Everyone say lifestyle of love. It's a lifestyle of love. And sometimes this is hard to do. Let's be honest. It's sometimes hard to love. You ever, you ever meet some people that are hard to love? Can I get a witness? Some people are hard to love. And the cool thing about this, this is not the kind of love that you and I have to make up. We don't have to try to conjure up this love. And we're going to see how this unfolds, where this love comes to, and how this love can be manifest in our life. But this love matters most. The greatest is love. It always has been and it always will be. Um, Verse 37 tells us what's the most important thing. Jesus like it's a two-part answer. Here's the first part. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. He's saying, aim your love. Your your love has an aim, guys. Your love and my love has an aim. We can aim our love. The Bible says you can't love God and love money at the same time. The Bible says you can't. Um, Money's not evil, but the love of it is. And the love of a lot of things robs us from the love of God. The Bible says if you try to love both, you'll end up rejecting one and serving the other because you can't serve two masters. Our love has an aim. And if we're aimed at other things, we might say, yes, God, I love you, but our actions might show something totally different. The reality is that's not love. How many of you know love is as love does, right? Love is as love does. We can't go, oh, no, God, I love you, I love you. but I don't talk to you, and I don't meet with you, and I don't read your word, and I don't read your counsel, and I don't share your love, and we don't really connect, but I love you, we're good. In the meantime... I'm going to be about my business over here. And by the way, can you help me be about my business with this stuff that I love so much over here? It's not you, God, but I love this. But can you help me love this other stuff more? And that would be like asking God, can you help me, God, with an affair? Think about this. Can you help me with an affair? The prophets used this language in Israel. Same language. 
We're supposed to love God, Israel, but we're off having an affair with other gods or other things or other idols. It might not be a, a shape of a thing that we light incense to, but it's other things that we, anything that rises itself up against the knowledge of God, anything that rises itself above God, anything that we aim our love at higher than God becomes idolatry because we lift it higher than God. And all those things have to get knocked down and God's got to be first. And this is what this commandment's about. He's like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He's saying, be all in with God, all in. See, God, our love with God can't be a fence kind of thing. Well, I'm kind of on a fence. I kind of love the world. I think I love you too, God. And I'm kind of, it doesn't work that way. It's an all in thing. See, that's what the Lord even means. The Lord means he's king. God is not someone we just know about. The demons know about God and shudder, the Bible says. So knowing about God, how many of you know the devil quoted scripture? So knowing about God isn't, okay, great, so now what? It's a heart surrendered to him. Making him Lord is where the power is, that's where the love is, that's where the relationship is, that's where the redemption is, and that's what he's saying in this passage. He's like, aim your love at God, be all in. With all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, everything, no holding back. Now, what would that look like? And that's something you need to ask yourself in your own life. What would that look like for you? I got to ask myself the same question. I would say what it looks like for me now is not what it looked like for me 10 years ago. 10 years ago is not what it looked like for me before, before that because I'm, I'm, I'm knowing him more and I'm understanding him more and he's calling me into deeper relationship with him. And deeper relation. And when that happens, we got to take these steps and, and, and our life begins to change and, and things we're aiming at begin to change and things start to transfer a little bit. But I would suggest to you one thing that it would look like, at least pray about this. I think these are scriptural examples. Um, it would be evidenced. If we love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, if we're all in, I think it would be evidenced by the way we spend our time, the way we use our talents, and how we use our treasure, our time, our talents, and our treasure. You think about being married, and you go down the aisle, and you sweep your wife away, and you get married, and all this stuff like that, and there is no time, or no talent, or no treasure at all expended. Does that look like love? Does it look like love? What if somebody says, but I love you? Does it look like love? Because love is as love does, right? So, the Bible is saying this all in relationship with God. And the Bible speaks a lot about, um, and, and there's a reason Paul's writing this, because he saw a lot of people, even in the early church, guys, we think the early church was perfect. The early church had issues to work through, but the early church had this thing where people were saying, yes, Lord, I love you, but the world's looking pretty good too. And they're in this quandary between two places with the principle of loving you, God. I believe you are true and you're, you're the Lord. But listen, I got serious appetite over here, God. So hold on a minute. And this tension between God and the world and this tension pulling them in two opposite directions. Listen, that's a tug of war. And I promise you only one can win. Only one will win. We can't have the world and a love relationship with God. The Bible refers that to carnal Christianity, carnality. Um, King, King James uses the term the carnal, the carnal Christian. The one like obsessed with the world is the carnal Christian. In other words, just our appetites for the flesh are wound up, even though we say we have a profession and uh, we call God Lord, but we can't really call him Lord and be enamored with the world. How many of you know we live in the world, but we're not of the world? We're in it, but not of it. 
So yes, we make the most of our opportunities and it's not wrong to have stuff. It's not wrong to have goals and ambitions and dreams. But listen, everything's got to be so consecrated under the one we love. Amen? That's what matters. Consecrate everything under the one we love. That's being all in with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. That's what it looks like of being all in. And so uh, 1 John 2.15 says this. I love this. It says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Ouch. That's saying if we really are, yeah, God, I love you. I said the prayer, so we're good, right? I said the prayer, I got heaven. We good, God? Cool. I'm going after this, like, relentlessly. Like this appetite thing over here. God's like, yeah, it doesn't look like love to me. I love you. I sent my son for you. I'm taking away your sins. I'm writing your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. I want to enter a love relationship with you that is profound. I want to put things in you for discovery. I'll have things for you to walk in. They're going to bring so much more satisfaction than anything you know. But I can if you're running off. It's kind of like having an affair. It really is. Israel, it was modeled so clearly through the prophets. God's calling them to love relationship, but they're running off having an affair with the world. God's like, you're breaking my heart. I love you. Would you come back to me? And that's what the message of every prophet. Yes, there was insights and future things, prophecy that way, but almost every prophet had one central message. Please come back. God loves you. You're running off having an affair. Please come back. And sometimes Israel's like, okay. And they're like, no, we're not hearing you right now. And they keep going. You're like, oh, Israel, Israel, Israel. And then they go through a consequence. And they're like, okay, God, you got our attention. You got our attention. We're back. We're all in for a while. (laughs) And then pretty soon their eyes started to wander off. And I believe that's true today in the church. When we look at the world and what the world has to offer, we supposedly made a one-time decision as a Christ follower, and if you do, that decision is making a decision with the world too, amen? We gotta make a decision, what are we doing with the world? We're in it, but we're not of it. So our ambitions aren't to satisfy the world and to get everything the world has to offer. We need to get everything God has to offer, amen? And it's okay if you have stuff in the world, but it's not, it's not what you have, church, it's where it's at that matters, amen? It's not what you have. You know, you can, God can bless you to be a billionaire, hallelujah, you can own, it's not what you have, it's where it's at that matters. And if God is first, really, really first, hallelujah, and I've seen him do that, bless people's socks off, there's people in the Bible that way, but the bottom line is, it's where it's at that's consecrated, then God is Lord and the world is not. And that's really what he's saying right here. So if you're a note taker, write this last one down this morning. The aim of life, the aim of life is simply... Simply, loving God and loving others. Hey, Jesus, what matters most? You really want to know? Yes, out of the whole book. Whole book. You got 66 books here. What matters most in this book? Quite simply, loving God, loving others. That's not complicated. You and I may have a mission statement in life. I don't know if you've ever worked on a mission, like what am I doing, what am I aiming at, what am I going for, what am I doing, but I just want to tell you the, the mission statement Jesus has given you this morning. It's a very simple one. Simply, love God and love others. Simply, simply love God and simply love others. That's the mission statement he's, he's saying right here. And that's why he says in verse 39, the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You wouldn't hurt yourself. You take care of yourself. You look out for yourself. Can you love your neighbor that way? Can you love your neighbor that way? And again, this is not a feeling. 
of loving people. This is not a personality style. Well, others are more loving than me. It's not that at all. This is the kind of love. Listen, guys, this love is a proof, proof of an outflow that the Spirit of God is working in your life. This kind of love is an outflow of the Spirit of God. How many of you know the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians is what? Love. Love. Now, some theologians love peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control, all these things, right? But some theologians look at the way that's written, some, and say the fruit of the Spirit is love, comma, almost described as patience, peace, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering. Does that make sense? Or, or they may delineate all individual topics. The bottom line is it's a beautiful summary of what the Spirit does. So we don't need to argue the semantics, but some would say the fruit of the Spirit is is love. How many know God is love? And if he is in us, then the fruit of the Spirit is, is love. And the greatest is, is love. And this is what this is saying. It's an outflow of the proof that God's working in our life. Because guys, we can't make this stuff up. I can't psych myself up to love people, and neither can you. you we can't like, oh, this is going to try harder to love today. Urgh. It isn't that way. It isn't. That's like doing a task. But this love is not that. The love that a Christian's called to is not just work harder. You know what we're called to? Listen, be closer. We're not called to work harder. We're called to be closer because when you're closer to God, his love is manifest in your life and we have love for others. Do you see where this comes from? If we get close to God, the love of God will be in us. It'll be in us. It's not a struggle to, to love God. We just spend time with him. The love of God will be manifest in us. The fruit of the Spirit will be in our life. The fruit of love will flow out of us. It's not work harder. It's simply be closer. Do you see how that works? It's an outflow. We can't make it up. If you're really loving God, listen, if you're really loving God, it'll actually be easy to love your neighbor. If we're not really loving God, we're not going to have any more love for our neighbor than anybody else does in the world. We won't. We won't. But if we are loving God, we will. And that's evidenced not only by what Scripture is presenting to us and what the New Testament tells us, this is evidenced by the history of Christians around planet Earth. Listen, the church of Jesus Christ, the followers of Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, have provided in the history of humanity more food for the hungry, more clothes for the clo- without clothing, more help for those in prison, more help for the orphans, more help for the disenfranchised than any other organization or institution on the planet. The Christians have done that. We founded hospitals and schools and things to help people with their issues, the problems, after tragedies, Christians going in in the name of God, trying to help and to love and see restoration. That's the history of our people. That's our heritage. That's our culture because we come from a source of people who take Jesus' word seriously that if I put God first and if I'm all in with him, loving him, I will have an outflow to be able to, to love others. And the uh, Christian organizations have created more hospitals, fed more hungry, clothed the naked, taken in more orphans than any other group on the planet. Why? Because the love of Christ compels us, amen? The love of Christ compels us. So when we spend time with God, not busy doing, when we spend time being with God, and that would, that would be being in his presence through worship and through the word, and prayer. You're spending time in God's presence when you're in worship, when you're in the word, and when you're in prayer. You're in his presence. You're with him. And when you're with God, 
the fruit of the Spirit will come out of you and you'll be able to love other people in a way you simply can't pull off on your own. And we too will be like these other Christians historically who have changed the world and were light and salt and loved others around them. Because the love of Christ compels us, or at least the love of Christ wants to compel us, if we're willing for the love of Christ to compel us, to compel us to these things. So I got to ask you this morning, ask yourself, are you, are you compelled to love others? Do you feel like you're compelled to love others? Because if you're not, and this is true of my life, I catch myself in zones and seasons where I'm like, you know what? I don't feel like I got a lot of love for other people. You know what I need to do? I don't need to do more. I need to spend more time with him, amen? Because when I spend more time with God, then the, the, love, the, the fruit of love begins to come out of my life and manifest and bless other people. But I can't make it up and you can't either. And nobody can throughout history. This isn't you read about it, you learn about it, you study about it, and then all of a sudden you go execute. It isn't like a play in football. You go this way, you go that way, and that's love. That's not the way it works. We spend time with him. It's an outflow of being abiding in Jesus, connecting with God in, in the word and worship and prayer. As we're connected, the fruit of the Spirit's manifest in our life, and then the love of Christ compels us to love others. Jesus says, you want to know what matters most? Simply love God and simply love others. That's what matters most in life. So uh, everything else, guys, flows from this. Everything else flows from this. So I want to just ask if the worship team comes up. We're going to close in prayer right now. But here's the thing, guys. Love matters most. And if you're like me, you feel like that gas tank, that fuel tank of spirituality, of capacity to love, uh, it sometimes gets lower and lower. Uh, has anyone ever driven one of those old Volkswagen uh, Beetles, old one? Anybody driven an old Beetle? All right, old school in the house. Anybody else? Okay, yeah. Anybody else? Okay, you got to drive one just for experience sometime, okay? Just go test drive one. But the old ones, the old ones have this cool thing on the gas gauge. First of all, they got crazy good gas mileage back in the day. But uh, here's full, and it went all the way down to empty, right? But then, then it had this cool little section over here. Remember what it was called? Reserve. It had reserve. So you can be on empty, and you still have reserve. And that tells you, I got time to find my way to a gas station, and I won't pass one, but I'm not going to run out of gas. This reserve was really, really cool. It was like you got a little extra fuel in your tank. It was like bonus gas, you know what I mean? Um, but, but if you're like me, sometimes you feel like you don't have reserve. Has anybody felt that way, especially in the love department? I don't have that reserve, God. Um, only our intimacy with God will produce that love. We can't do it any other way. We can't try harder can't work out more, we can't sleep more, we can't get in a better zone, psych ourselves up. We gotta be in a love relationship with God. If we're loving Him first, love for others will flow. And I wanna ask if you wanna join me, but I want God to pour out His love in my life so that it will be manifest in the lives of others. If that's you, stand with me this morning. We're gonna ask God to make this real in our hearts this morning. If that's you, stand. If you don't want, you don't have to, you can do this privately later at home. If that's you, just raise your hands to God. And say, mighty God, we come before you with empty hands, Lord. But they're not just empty, Lord. They're pointed up to you uh, because, Lord, we love you. And we say we love you and we mean we love you. But, God, sometimes we fall so short of loving you. Sometimes we say we love you, God, but we actually have our eyes on the world. We get to looking at what the world's doing, what the world has to offer. God, and we want to ask forgiveness right now for our love for the world. Because we can't love you and the world at the same time. 
So mighty God, we pray that your love would be manifest in us, Lord. Draw us closer to you that we'll spend more time in your presence, in your word, in worship, in prayer, connected with you, God. Because we know when that happens, Lord, when we know when we put you first, when we're all in with you, God, when we're wholehearted with all our mind, our strength and our soul and our might, God, we know that when that happens, that your love will be manifest in our hearts, that the fruit of the Spirit will be love and that love will flow out of us, God, and we'll be instruments of your love and the love of Christ will compel us. This has been a presentation of Valley Metro Church. To hear more messages or to support future podcasts, please visit us at valleymetrochurch.com.